greetings and welcome to episode 34 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the Nanjing Decade, usually seen as about 10 years from 1927, the establishment of the new nationalist uh, capital in Nanjing, down in the south in the Yangtze River Basin, as opposed to the old imperial capital, and again, once again, the current capital today in Beijing, uh, until the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937, known to much of the rest of the world as World War II. Uh, but in China, it actually begins earlier. It begins several years before war breaks out in Europe, and you know, many several years before war breaks out uh, with the United States. Um, and in China, it's usually referred to as the Second Sino-Japanese no Japanese war because this is the second time, okay? Uh, the first one being 1894 to 1895, uh, which was the sort of shock, the tremor that first set the existential crisis of modern Chinese history into motion. Okay, now we're going to expand our chronology and our themes a little bit beyond this. We're not going to strictly, slavishly stick to just these 10-year period. I'm also going to cover the major developments and the broad themes that we want to understand about World War II as well, about the war with Japan, um, and we'll sort of end there with the consequences of the war. Okay, um, now first, when we want to talk about this 10-year period. Last time we talked about mainly the 1920s and the rise of, well, the creation Let's see, how are we going to say this? The revival, okay, to put it most accurately, the revival of the fortunes of the decrepit uh, Nationalist Party under the aegis of Sun Yat-sen, okay, um, with Soviet support way down in the south in Guangzhou, okay? And then we also talked about the creation from scratch of a second Leninist-style party state, the Nationalist, the Kuomintang being the first, um, and that was begun in Shanghai, and that's mostly urban intellectuals. Okay, Mao Zedong is a member of these early intellectuals, but he's not influential whatsoever. Mao Zedong will not achieve real power within the Communist Party until well into the 1930s. We're going to cover that today, when he becomes actually relevant. Okay, as long as the Communist Party is run by Soviet cadres, um, in the cities, Mao Zedong is not going to have power. All right, and the movement won't succeed either. Okay, because the cities are where Chiang Kai-shek is. The cities are where the warlords are. And none of these guys like communists. <laughs> okay, none of these guys like communists. They, they have this love-hate relationship with the Russians and the Soviets. They all are interested in receiving Soviet support because the Soviets can offer a lot of tangible material support. Uh, but they're all wary of going a little bit too far in a socialist direction. Very few are sympathetic um, or inclined to be sympathetic towards communist ideologies, okay? We talked about, so the, these two parties, uh, the Soviets, sort of their, their favorite child, the CCP, the Communist Party, but they realize that it's very weak and the prospects aren't very good, uh, so they put most of their uh, apples into the nationalist Guomindang basket and then force the two to work together in the first coalition, all right, and that's very uneasy, doesn't work out very well, and Chiang Kai-shek ends up executing every single last communist he can get his hands on during the White Terror in April of 1927, and then most communists have to flee to the countryside, and this is the, the beginnings of when Mao is going to have some leverage now, because that's where he thought he would best be able to start a revolution was in the countryside, not in the cities. All right. Um, now we are starting out here in 1927 with really just one party, Okay, that has any power whatsoever. The communists are dispersed, they're scattered, they're demoralized, many of them are dead. <laughs> all right, and those who have chosen to remain and work in the cities are all undercover. 
on the pain of execution, uh, Chiang Kai-shek has achieved a semblance of power. Okay, he has what we would refer to as the Yangtze River Basin. Now, obviously, on a podcast, I can't show you a map, uh, but, you know, if you could see a whole map of China, this huge territorial beast, um, the actual territory that Chiang Kai-shek has direct control over is quite small. It's quite small. Okay, he has Nanjing, the city of Nanjing, the city of Shanghai, and then maybe the province, his home province of Zhejiang, directly to the south of Shanghai, uh, the province of Anhui to the north, Jiangsu to, and Jiangxi to the west. Okay, and even then, most of his power, even in these places, is largely in the cities, not in the rural areas. Okay, it's not much. All right, it's not much. It is one of the wealthiest parts of China. There's no doubt about that. There's a lot of money here. Okay, this was the region that in the old days, they used to have those shared funds. Remember that Xiexiang, the shared funds? Uh, They used to take money from these wealthy provinces, the provinces that Chiang Kai-shek now has, and they would funnel it out. They would channel it over to the poorer borderland areas that couldn't raise the funds to support a military and administrative apparatus. Right. Chiang Kai-shek knows this. He knows this is the wealthiest part of China. And he knows he needs, he needs money. And a lot of the foreign community is also in Shanghai as well. So he thinks this is a good place to be. Okay, uh, But don't overestimate how much power he has. There are other warlords. Now, former warlords, officially former warlords... They've all said, you know, oh, you know, we'll wear nationalist clothes, we'll raise the nationalist flag, all this sort of stuff. Uh, but in practice, they're basically autonomous still. All right? Some of the big, the most important warlords, you have Feng Yuxiang. Feng Yuxiang has control over Gansu, Henan, Shanxi, Shandong. That's a big chunk of the north and northwest. Yan Xishan has Shanxi, that's different than Shanxi. Uh, Shanxi, Suiyuan, Hebei. Uh, again, north, northwest, sort of mixed in with Feng Yuxiang. Uh, Zhang Xueliang. Zhang Xueliang is the son of Zhang Zuolin. That's the tiger of Manchuria. Way out in the northeast. He's, you know, the one who was more closer with the Japanese, received aid from them. But then he decided he was going to go down to Beijing, talk with Chiang Kai-shek's representatives, and perhaps join the Nationalist Party and see how that worked out. And the Japanese said, no, 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 no. And they killed him with a bomb on his train as he went down to Beijing. Uh, didn't turn out too well for the Japanese because Jiang Xiliang, his son, uh, decided he would also sort of throw in uh, uh, his lot with the Nationalists. That's also going to be a problem, Okay. Zhang Xueliang joining the Nationalists from a background of being an autonomous warlord, or at least his father being an autonomous warlord. Uh, it's not going to be a coincidence that Zhang Xueliang is going to be the chief driving uh, figure behind the kidnapping of Chiang Kai-shek in the Xi'an incident of 1936. Okay, uh, Mao Zedong would never have to be afraid of being kidnapped by one of his own generals. Chiang Kai-shek will. Because he has to incorporate these guys without truly defeating them. They are not decisively defeated on the battlefield. Okay? So they still retain a sense of autonomy, a sense of personal ambition, their own ties, their own base of support, and their transformation into loyal nationalist uh, members of the party uh, is largely a facade. Okay? It's largely a facade. We haven't even covered the whole country yet. There's the Guangxi clique in the provinces of Guangxi, Guangdong, Hunan, and Hubei. And there are those that are largely independent and they don't have any sort of warlord alliance and they're way out on, on, on the southwestern and northwestern periphery. Yunnan, Guizhou, Sichuan, Ningxia, Qinghai, Xinjiang. Good lord! 
There's an enormous part of the country that's still run by all intents and purposes by autonomous warlords who are mem- Nationalist Party members and loyal to, to Chiang Kai-shek on paper only. Okay? And wars will continue. Wars will continue. Some of these warlords will rebel against Chiang Kai-shek, and he's continuing to fight them, even after 1927, 1928, 1929, 1930. In fact, the last major warlord challenge to Chiang Kai-shek comes in 1933 from Fujian in the southeast across the Taiwan Strait. And when Chiang Kai-shek finally defeats that one, remember, he's capable of defeating any any individual warlord or, you know, uh, maybe alliance of two warlords, okay? no, None of these warlords can really uh, uh, get themselves allied together in a large enough coalition to truly defeat Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Party. So he keeps on picking them off one by one, but it's sapping his strength, it's sapping his morale. He has to constantly use his resources to take down these warlords who never truly submit. Okay, what are the consequences of continued challenges to Chiang Kai-shek's power? Sort of the aborted revolution in the 1920s, the, you know, the consequences of the Northern Expedition in 1926 and 27 not being able to uh, go and conquer the entire country because you're afraid of what the Japanese are going to do when you start encroaching on their territories in the north. All right, the consequences of that is basically continued Chinese civil war under a facade of a unified national government. All right, the warlord era, as I said before, isn't truly over. It's not 100% warlords, which is why we sort of quarantined the warlord era between 1916 and 1928, Um, but it's certainly not 100% oh, the nationalists have the entire country of China. Not even close. Not even close. All right. One of the other consequences is that the nationalist government isn't going to get much uh, revenue from the land tax at all. 65% of the national product of China is produced in the rural sector at this point, and Chiang Kai-shek has virtually no access to it whatsoever. All right, that's a big handicapped, handicap. Okay, an overwhelmingly agrarian rural country with still, you know, a huge percentage of the population in the countryside producing that uh, economic commodity, and he can't tax it. He doesn't have access to most of the countryside. This is going to lead Chiang Kai-shek then to rely more on the business community and the foreign community in Shanghai, and he will shamelessly exploit the Shanghai business community, the, uh, the banking community in particular. It's also going to mean that foreign countries are less inclined to invest in Chiang Kai-shek's government or in China in general in this climate of political instability. It means that nationalist party policies are going to be scattered. Uh, implementation of these policies are going to be piecemeal. All right, Politics has to come first. Consolidation of your power has to come first. And what limited resources you have are largely going to go towards the military. Because remember, you need to beat Japan one day. You need to be able to uh, uh, have a credible threat to make the other foreigners, even the ones who aren't Japanese, to make the other uh, foreigners uh, uh, just enough afraid of you that they're going to be willing to say, yeah, we'll give up our special privileges one day. If you don't have that military, if you don't have this sort of stuff, then they're not going to make that promise. They're going to say that you're a barbarous nation that hasn't modernized, and we're, and we're going to continue to keep our troops here to protect our own community. And so the Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek, is trying, he's trying um, to, you know, bring, put China back together to create new civil institutions. And there is some great progress. There is a sense of optimism among many educated elites during the Nanjing decade. They're saying, look, we're trying. It's hard. Conditions are tough. But we're not warlords. We have a, a coherent ideology 
We have organizational discipline. We have a trained military. Okay? And we're trying to put China back together and modernize it. We have new courts. We're modernizing our jail system. Okay? We're sponsoring literature, newspapers, all the things that make up a modern civil society. We're trying to do it. We have youth outreach programs. Okay? Um, but it's tough. There aren't a lot of resources. Alright? Okay. Now, let's talk about the major political and economic relationship that occurs during the 1920s and the 1930s. Okay? Um, during the 1920s, the late 1920s, but really mostly the, the, the mid-1930s, the last four or five years in the run-up to World War II, or until the Sino-Japanese War in 1937, okay, the big relationship that the nationalist government will have will be with the Germans. This is something, sort of a footnote of history that many people have forgotten about, okay? Uh, in the early 1930s, China, Chiang, Kai-shek's, na, Chiang, Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government and the Germans even before Hitler comes to power, will find themselves in a mutually beneficial relationship. All right, a relationship of convenience, of course, but nonetheless, it existed. Okay? Now, originally, Germany was no different to the Chinese than any other Western imperialist nation, or the Japanese. Okay? They had their colonial empire. They had a lot of islands in Micronesia. They had colonies in Africa. They had uh, colonial interest and railroad interest in the province of Shandong sort of to the southeast of Beijing, a major coastal peninsula province that juts out there. Uh, they established the brewery and had largely control over a town called Qingdao. All right, you might recognize the name, uh, probably because it's spelled weird. You might not recognize the way I pronounce it. Uh, Qingdao is where the German brewery was, <laughs> where, the, where, 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 where they made German beer uh, in Qingdao. Uh, the, 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 the old spelling, which is retained today on the brand of beer, once it was later revived, uh, is T-S-I-N-G-T-A-O. Uh, uh, but it's pronounced in modern-day pinyin transliteration, Q-I-N-G-D-A-O. Qingdao. Anyways, German beer, okay, uh, was located in Shandong province, and they also had some railroad interests there as well. And, you know, whenever you want to get your troops into a foreign country that you have power over, you just say, oh, we need to send our troops to protect our railroad interests, which we invested in. That's how you do it, right? Okay, so Germany is no different than the other imperialist nation from the Chinese perspective originally. World War I changes everything. Okay, World War I changes everything because Germany loses World War I. So far, I've been talking about the Chinese relationship with the winners of World War I, <laughs> okay? Like the Japanese and the British. Now we're going to talk about the relationship with the loser of World War I. Ah, well, once Germany loses World War I, it changes the nature of the relationship considerably. Because what happens to Germany when they lose? Well, the victors uh, decide to take away all of their colonial possessions. You've lost the right to be a responsible imperial power. Give your colonies to us, and that's what they do. And the British and the French take them. Okay? Um, and so Germany loses its interest in Shandong. All right? The German brewery as well. Ooh, that's a big loss. That's good beer. Okay? Remember the Versailles Conference? Uh, uh, the Germany's possessions are taken and given to the Japanese. Now, the Chinese aren't happy about that. They wanted it back for themselves. But nonetheless, the end result is that from the perspective of Sino-German relationships, the Germans no longer have colonial imperialist interest in China, all right? So that makes them more palatable to the Chinese. There's no fear of ulterior motives, 
You might think of this, think of this as an analogy with the appeal that the Soviet Union had, that, that the Bolsheviks re- revolutionaries had to Sun Yat-sen just a decade earlier, okay, in the wake of the Russian Civil War. The Germans will now have the same appeal to Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party as the Bolsheviks once did to Sun Yat-sen and other Chinese progressive elites before. That is to say, they are of the West, and yet they criticize the West and profess to be different. Okay? And because they are repudiating or have been forced to repudiate their imperialist privileges in China, they no longer have teeth. They no longer have fangs that you're worried about so you can enter into a relationship with them and not worry that they can really use that as a pretext to meddle in your domestic politics anymore. They've been emasculated. Okay? So, the German-China relationship develops when both of them begin to pursue a controlled, top-down economy under state direction that is geared almost entirely towards industrial preparation for war. Chiang Kai-shek knows war is coming. The Germans, especially when Hitler comes to power, are fully expecting a war to reverse the humiliation of World War I. Okay, this creates a mutually compatible economic relationship between China and Germany in the early 1930s. The German war economy needs raw materials. That's what they want from China, and China has tons of natural resources. Wolfram, tungsten, all right, the sort of things that you need to make industrial munitions, bullet casings, bombs, all right, tank treads, this sort of stuff. Okay, and Germany also, because they've geared their economy towards creating these industrial munitions, they need an export market. They want to import raw materials to build this stuff, and then they need markets to export their excess stuff to as well, because they can't use it all. Oh, well, this is perfect for China. They have no cash to pay for this stuff, but they have lots of raw, uh, raw natural resources that the Germans want that they can then exchange for the excess industrial munitions that Germany is going to create. So it's an ideal barter arrangement. Okay? And when Hitler's National Socialism Party seizes power in January of 1933, it really jumpstarts what was already a budding, mutually beneficial economic relationship between the two countries. Okay? Um, Now, this relationship will eventually uh, end. Heartbreakingly for the Chinese, when the Japanese invade China and the Chinese and the Japanese are fighting each other, then Germany is forced to take sides. And they decide in the end that Japan is our better bet from geopolitical strategic interests. Okay? Uh, but until then, for most of the 1930s before 1937, uh, that was the most important relationship. And it bore a lot of fruit for Chiang Kai-shek's government. Okay? For the early 1930s, German experts arrive into to the Yangtze River Basin in droves. They help establish an industrial base in China, a little bit inland, away from the vulnerable treaty ports. Leading Chinese intellectuals are encouraged to adopt major significant posts, jobs within the nationalist government, thinking, yeah, we're constructing our nation, we're getting strong again. A strong, proud military, civil institutions, a media, a press, newspapers, youth outreach programs, all right, banking services, courts, the whole, the whole shebang, schools. We're doing it. Slowly, hard, but we're doing it. And there is a palpable sense of optimism. Frustration, too, how difficult it was. Okay, but optimism. 
So the GMD oversees the creation of iron and steel complexes or processing facilities. Arsenals, the creation of arsenals to equip their new army, air force, and navy. Yeah, air force. China's going to have an air force for the first time. Highway construction is unprecedented. From only 736 miles of paved highway in 1921 to 59,000 miles by 1935, and almost all of that in the Nanjing decade. Their own automobile manufacturing company by 1936. Sponsorship of fascist youth outreach programs like the Blue Shirts. I know, fascism, we think, oh, boo-hoo, bad, bad, bad. And yes, it is. I'm not, I'm not trying to support fascism. Uh, but it was something that was a fairly widespread ideology in many parts of the world. Even in countries that didn't elect a fascist government, there was still considerable sympathy for fascist ideas as a means of rejuvenating national power and prestige in the world. Uh, there are plenty of Americans who had sympathy for what Germany and Italy uh, and Chiang Kai-shek were doing at this time period, even if America never became sort of fascist overall. Okay, it was a very attractive ideology for many people who were looking at the Great Depression and all the, you know, the things that had happened since World War I and saying, how are we going to revive our fortunes? Fascism seemed to, to, to offer that promise, a strong leader, a strong state, top-down, controlled economy, na you know, ultra-nationalism to unite, to, to unite the people, idolization of one leader. That was just great. Looks like it's doing wonders for Germany. They were down in the dumps after World War I. Looked pretty bad. Look at them now. And then also what's going on in the 1930s is we have the conservative reaction. Remember, we had all those iconoclasts, cultural iconoclasts, those, those, those critics in the 19-teens, the 1920s who were saying, well, we had a revolution. That was the last major thing that we could think of to save our asses, and it didn't work. We're still being bullied around by every single power, even Japan. Well, there's only one thing left that we haven't tried. Culture. We gotta change Chinese culture. We have to ditch Chinese culture. Everything. Even the Chinese characters can go. Alright, and you know, they get a lot of attention. They get a lot of press, those iconoclasts, those people who wanted to change everything and throw away everything. Oh, Confucianism has to go. But they were actually one of the, you know, a loud vocal minority. They weren't the majority. Chiang Kai-shek, I think, would represent a little bit more the majority mainstream consensus of educated elites who took pride. They took pride in their Chinese heritage, naturally. Most people take pride in the heritage of whatever country or civilization that they identify with, and the Chinese were no exception. And many of them said, no, Chinese characters are great. Confucianism is great. It's worked for this long. It can work again. We just got to tinker around and change it. And one of the things, obviously, we can't have a session here on Chinese film on an audio podcast, but in my class, I always have a session on Chinese film. And one of the films I like to show is called The Song of China. Song of China. Um, which was translated, I think it was Tianlun in Chinese, 1935-36. It's right in the middle of the Sino-German relationship. And it's, this, it's not a very you know, high-quality film, but it was a film that received a lot of patronage and support from Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. All right? And it's all about this old patriarch, Confucian patriarch of a rural family who has raised his family. He's on his deathbed, um, and his their way of life is threatened by the younger generation who grows up during the May 4th movement generation, the new culture uh, movement generation. And this is the generation that moves to the hedonistic cities where you have foreign influence. 
And women wear, you know, less clothes and they go partying all the time and they forget filial piety and they ignore their parents and they do whatever the hell they want and they indulge their own thrills. All right. And it says this, basically the movie is suggesting this is the generation that brought China low. We were okay in the past. That old patriarchal benevolent generation in the pure unsullied countryside. That's where it's at. That's where real China is at. And the film valorizes that old patriarchy from the countryside. All right, the rich, wealthy, who always make the best decision with their wealth. They always use it for charity. And by the end of the film, the, the son of the original Confucian patriarch uh, sort of brings the third generation in, back in line. The third generation who grew up during the May 4th era brings them back to the countryside, sets up a charity, an orphanage for, for all the kids. And sort of revives his father's Confucian patriarchy from the late 19th century. And overthrows, you know, sort of brings the May 4th generation back to heel. And takes pride in Chinese culture. Pure Chinese culture. And the very last image of the film is this new patriarch who runs the orphanage. uh, Sort of uh, standing on this platform, being pulled by a bunch of little kids who are goose-stepping and marching and pulling it along. uh, Wearing their uniforms and everything, and they're idolizing this guy. It's fascism embodied on the silver screen. If you see it, it's quite amazing to see. It's the embodiment of a conservative reaction to that May 4th movement. To that May 4th generation. And that's what the nationalists represent. And it's seen as a good thing from their perspective. Okay, if we throw everything away, there'll be nothing left. So, what also happens, of course, is the modernization of the military, as I've already alluded to. Previously, China had no tanks whatsoever, few aircraft, no usable maps, little artillery. By 1937, with the help of German military advisors and officers, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party has an elite squad of 80,000 German-trained troops equipped with German equipment, German heavy artillery, German-made airplanes manufactured by the Junkers uh, Air, uh, Air, Aircraft Company. They produced 200 to 250 aircraft in three years for the Nationalist Party. The Nationalists have a submarine, first submarine in China. The city of Shanghai is now defended by state-of-the-art German technology. By the year 1936, just one year before Japan invades, German advisors estimated publicly, they said, you know what? In three to four years, China will be able to reach parity with the Japanese military and could win a battle against the Japanese or at least fight them to a standstill. Just we're only three, four years away from that. That's how much breathtaking progress had taken place during the Nanjing decade under German tutelage with the military and this economic relationship. Okay, And there were also, as you said, you got to mention there were halting steps towards a more open society and free media, though obviously with limits. Don't, don't, don't overdo that. Don't exaggerate that. Okay? Uh, But certainly by comparison with other periods in Chinese history, Chiang Kai-shek didn't like to be criticized, obviously, and he was an authoritarian dictator himself. He was constantly talking about promising democracy one day in the future when China's ready, when we've gotten rid of the communists and the foreign imperialists, one day we'll we'll introduce democracy too. He never really got around to that. (laughs) Um, It was still that democratic centralism of a Leninist party state. Uh, But by necessity, in the 1930s, he was forced to allow more open debate. You, 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 you could print contrary opinions in the newspapers in the 1930s. Yeah, some newspaper editors got, you know, mysteriously assassinated and whatnot. This sort of stuff happened. I'm not trying to wash over that. Uh, but by comparison with many other, uh, with most, if not all, other eras of Chinese history, the 1930s, this Nanjing decade, was one of the most open, 
And if you were in a city, relatively stable and optimistic periods in modern Chinese history. Okay. And what about the communists? What about the communists? Let's talk about them. The fate of Chinese communism. When we left them, they were in shambles. Well, from 1927 to 1934, let's sort of track down the trace of Mao Zedong. What's Mao Zedong doing? Mao is in the Jiangxi border regions. This is to the western periphery of Chenka, of the extent of nationalist control. All right, Jiangxi is one of the provinces to the immediate west of the Shanghai Nanjing area. All right, Chiang Kai-shek has the cities in Jiangxi, uh, but obviously not the rural areas. And Mao is sort of off in the mountains on the periphery of this area. Okay, now Mao was one of the first to abandon the urban focus that had been suggested and indeed insisted upon by those Soviet cadres, by the Comintern. Okay, Mao from the beginning, well, Mao himself is unique in having a peasant background. His father was a rich peasant. Now, don't get misled by the word rich. <laughs> He's still a friggin' peasant, <laughs> okay? Even a rich peasant is living a life that you and I couldn't even imagine, and we probably couldn't endure it for more than 24 hours, okay? But in the context of where he came from, rich peasant it ain't all that bad. His father would have owned some land. They may even have hired some other peasants to work on their land. But he's not a rich landlord. Right? So he, but he does come from a rural background. Many of the, of the most prominent communist members for the first 15 years of the Chinese Communist Party were urban intellectuals, just like the Soviets were, just like Lenin and Stalin. They're urban intellectuals. They're not peasants. So Mao is unique in being a peasant. And yet he was a peasant who went to the city during his teenage years, got, uh, you know, piecemeal education, and then made his way to Beijing, worked in the, in the Beijing University Library, and wanted to be an intellectual, but didn't have the wealth and resources and education necessary to truly be accepted as one of them. Always felt sort of an outsider. And that's going to that's gonna come back over and over again throughout his career. Mao, although he aspires to be an intellectual, and he's incredibly smart himself, and he's w- widely read, he's well-read. He reads the histories, all this sort of stuff. He's not, a, he's not a true scholar. And he was never trained as a true scholar. And he was never trained properly, you know, a full education either. And this is going to be a point of contention with him. It's going to be a point of bitterness. And he will repeatedly persecute intellectuals throughout his career. Most severely after he takes power in the 1950s. But that's all in the future. Right now, I just want to tell you that so you can see, oh yeah, it makes sense that Mao would have an inclination to go back to the countryside because he's originally a peasant, okay? And most of the other members of the CCP are not. They're urban intellectuals and they think, no, the revolution, Marx said the revolution has to take place among the urban proletariat and factories, all right? The stuff in the countryside, that's an embarrassment. That's not how revolution is going to take root, Okay, so Mao is one of the first to abandon the urban focus. He also begins in the urban area and he says, enough with this shit. I'm getting out of here and going to the countryside. <laughs> I'm going to lose my head. And the, and the urban areas are dominated by the nationalist or hostile uh, nationalist affiliated warlords. And Mao is saying, let me see if we can recruit peasants, rural peasants, by trying to improve their lives. Wow, what, what a novel idea. Instead of taxing them and taking their money, let's try to actually see, is there some sort of economic policy we can come up with to improve their lives and then they'll support us politically? And he starts to tinker around, experiment, often in the, uh, now he's in the Jiangxi area. He moves around. He was previously in, in a rural Hunan province, his, 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 his own uh, home province. Um, and he's tra- experimenting around with pragmatic policies on social reform, land reform, tax reduction, rent reduction, all this sort of stuff. Okay, and he has some modest success. He's not doing too bad. But let's not exaggerate his success either. 
The communist movement, both in the cities and in the countryside, is on life support. In the south, especially the southern parts of China, landlords are very powerful. Cast your mind back, if you've been a loyal listener for all these uh, episodes, cast your mind back to the Great Southern Migration, in which we talked about the difference between southern landlords, southern farming communities, and northerner ones. All right, Southern landlords are extremely powerful. They run these huge, mighty, rice-growing estates with tons of labor. They're like little lordlings, little kings all their own, running these, these uh, uh, huge estates. Okay? It's very difficult to recruit peasants in that environment. Okay? And then Soviets keep on coming in. Soviet Comintern keeps on sending in advisors, and the advisors say, Get back to the city! What the hell are you doing out here in, among the peasantry? The revolution happens in the city, goddammit! And Mao says no. And what he's doing is in contravention of official Comintern directives. All right. He also teams up when he's in the Jiangxi areas with a soldier uh, by the name of Zhu De. Zhu De is a very famous man. He'll become uh, one of the, the leading military generals of the communist movement in the rural areas. Uh, many people, once they become more famous, will actually think that they'll take the surname of Zhu and Mao um, and put them together. And there was either, uh, a popular tale was that this was one person, uh, Zhu Mao. <laughs> Zhu Mao is coming. That was the communist rural uh, army. Uh, but their force numbers no more than 2,000 people. All right? And it's not going to be a highly trained force either. Okay, The CCP rural movement, known as R- Rural Soviets, Okay, were constantly under siege and on the move. And they had to abandon many of the peasants who they had, whose support they had recruited and leave them to the mercies of the nationalist soldiers who came in uh, when they were trying to rid the area of communists. And so you can imagine what happened to many of these peasants when they had shown support for Mao Zedong and other rural communists. Um, and then those rural communists fled in the face of nationalist extermination campaigns. Uh, what do you think happened to the peasants? Not very nice things. Okay, in fact, Mao himself will suffer a lot of heartache. He goes through a lot of heartache in his life. Some people, uh, some historians have actually speculated, was it because he himself had lost so many family members that he was so cruel later on and indifferent to, pe- to human suffering? Who knows? Uh, but his second wife, Yang Kaihui, will be captured and executed by the nationalist when, when uh, Mao flees the city of Changsha in Hunan in 1930. Mao's first wife was an arranged marriage that he refused to consummate. Um, His second wife is his marriage by choice. He also is a product of cultural reform movements, new culture, all that sort of stuff. Um, And his second wife is captured and killed because she's associated with him. And he leaves and flees and she is caught. He'll end up having four wives, by the way. Um, Now, Chiang Kai-shek, he sees his first order of business as suppressing the communist movement. Okay, got to suppress the communists. Not Japan, because he knows he can't fight Japan yet. He's not strong enough. All right, Chiang Kai-shek has the same dilemma that Yuan Shikai had 20 years earlier. Okay, the dilemma is not fighting Japan and allowing them to further increase their tentacles into China and exploit us decreases my political legitimacy as the ruler of China because I'm not defending China. Okay, that's the cost. That's the political cost of not fighting Japan. The political cost of fighting Japan is utter annihilation and the end of your entire career. Okay, so what are you going to do? That's a pretty shitty dilemma to have, isn't it? So Chiang Kai-shek says, I'm not ready to fight Japan. We're making great progress with the German advisors now, but I'm still not ready. They, like they said, we need three to four more years. So in the meantime, I'm going to destroy the cancer within because we need to eventually unite this country anyways, right? 
and the communists are the inner cancer. We have to excise that cancer. And so in the 1930s, he undertakes five what he calls bandit suppression campaigns. The communists will refer to the nationalists as bandits one day, and the nationalists refer to the communists as bandits. They both like that word, fey, uh, tu fey, uh, bandits, bandits of the land. I've actually worked in archives in Taiwan looking at stuff from the 1960s and 1970s, and it was hilarious to see the nationalist government on Taiwan, a full 20 years after they fled the mainland, still referring to the to the communist government on the mainland, which has all of China by this point except for Taiwan, still referring to them as the bandit government. <laughs> it was hilarious. All right, uh, that's how they like to refer to each other. The first four bandit suppression campaigns, a mixed bag. Okay, successes and failures. Sometimes he'd rout a communist base camp like Mao Zedong's in the mountains, but then, you know, some people would be killed, some captured. All right, we got Mao Zedong's wife, let's kill her. Uh, but then many of the top leaders would flee, and they would just start and recruit uh, uh, new peasants in a new area. Okay, and oftentimes Chiang Kai-shek's heart wasn't entirely in this. He, he often said, you know, I want to kill the communists. But at the same time, the communists tend to be located, their, their encampments tend to be located in those parts of China that are ruled by other warlords. Officially, it's the jurisdiction of one of these warlords who has only given lip service to being loyal to the nationalist government, but is still autonomous for me. Well, what a wonderful pretext. On the pretext of destroying the inner cancer of communism, which all the warlords agree with, none of these warlords are pro-communist, I can insert my own troops into the territory of these warlords and slowly chip away at the warlord authority. That very shrewd tactic, right? And so he does that a lot of times. And sometimes he'll use it purely as a pretext to send his troops into the jurisdiction of a warlord who he suspects of not being loyal. And so he's, you know, half interested in killing the communist and half interested in just having a presence in warlord territories. So, you know, it kind of goes back and forth here. All right, there's no decisive victories. But the fifth campaign, the fifth bandit suppression campaign in 1934, oh, that's different. Because that's undertaken with German expertise. And the German uh, officers tell Chiang Kai-shek, you know what you need to do? Here's how you do it. You want to exterminate a nest of rats? Here's how you exterminate them. And make sure none of them get out. Because every time you attack, they just flee. And many of them, you know, escape alive. Each time you attack now, you have to, you have to create a methodical encirclement. With each new base that you attack, set up a new garrison, a permanent presence to consolidate your gains and not let CCP guerrillas slip through the cracks like they always do. It's going to be a tight encirclement and eventually you'll annihilate them all. And it works really, really well. The communists are deathly afraid of what's happening. They are losing big time and they're afraid this is it. They're closing in. He now has German support. And the decision is, ma is made to abandon the Jiangxi rural Soviet bases. Okay, Mao still isn't one of the chief policymakers by 1934. All right, he's still not making these big decisions. Um, and in October 1934, the communist troops say, we have one last shot. We have to break out of this, this, this vice-like, viper-like, boa constrictor-like encirclement or we're all going to die. And they make a desperate dash to break through the lines out to the southwest. Many of them die. Some of them get out, and they begin what is known as the Long March. The Long March. The Long March. 1934 to 1935. 370 days, they, they cross 6,000 miles. Okay, Long March. This is the beginning of Mao. This is the beginning of Mao's control over the Communist Party. 
Okay, it's also going to witness, uh, witness the rise of many future key players in the Communist Party, men like Lin Biao, Peng Dehuai. Okay, they will rise to more prominence with the military role that they assume as you trek over 6,000 miles over a year. Now, they set out, they break through with 80,000 men and 35 women. Boy, you've got to feel sorry for those women, right? 35 women surrounded by 80,000 men. I would not want to be one of them. Um, most women and children were left behind to fend for themselves in Jiangxi, and many would be killed. Okay. During the Long March, if I had a map again, I could show you on China. It roughly goes in you know zigzag fashion through the southwestern, the poorest, mountainous southwestern regions of China, provinces of Guizhou, the peripheries of Sichuan province, and then it sort of snakes around. It goes north and then back to the east to the hinterlands of Shanxi province, north of Xi'an sort of north-central China, off into the desolate, uh, desertified hinterlands, known as Yan'an, is going to be the place that they end up in October 1935. While they're crossing through for this 370 days, through the poorest parts of southwestern and central-western China, they're crossing through largely hostile terrain and hostile peoples. The, the Guomindang has not stopped their attack. Chiang Kai-shek personally flies into some major cities along their route and directs the campaign to try to exterminate them once and for all. You're constantly being fired upon. People continue to die, both from being hit by attacks, strafing attacks of nationalist planes, and simply by the rigors of hiking and having no resources and you know no food and dying and all these sorts of things. Okay, And then finally, in January 1935, the communist uh, 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 encampment stops at a city known as Zuni in Guizhou province. And they hold the conference in which they reflect on the reasons for their defeat. They say, why is this happening to us? Why are we, in 15 years, why do we have so little to show for the revolution in China? And they come up with a conclusion in which they endorse the new mobile tactics outside of urban areas. They say, you know what? It's the slavish adherence to the Soviet directive that we keep on going back to the city. That's what's doing us in. We need to take a new, a new path forward that acknowledges China's rural conditions, overwhelmingly rural conditions, and stop focusing on the cities. And this is where Mao rises, because this is what he's always been advocating for. And this is where Soviet advisors, sometimes Chinese who have gone abroad to Moscow, gotten education there, fluent in Russian, and then sent back. This is where Mao begins to finally jostle them aside and take over control of the Chinese Communist Party because he seems to be the only person who's pursuing a path that leads to any sort of success. Now, the Mao Zedong-led communist forces reached Yan'an, a poor hinterland area in northern China, central northern China, Shanxi province, again, just a couple hours north of Xi'an, okay, in October 1935. With 10% of that original force. They set off with 80,000. They have like 8,000 people now. Not all of them would have died, of course, but many of them did. Others deserted, others stayed behind, whatever. So Mao gets there, and he has a very rousing pronouncement in which he says, quote, The Long March is the first of its kind in the annals of history. It is a manifesto, a propaganda force, a seating machine. It has proclaimed to the world that the Red Army is an army of heroes while the imperialists and their running dogs, Chiang Kai-shek and the like, are impotent. These are fine words, but they conceal the reality of the time. In hindsight, they sound very uh, very rousing. At the time, 
The communists had engaged in 15 years of revolutionary activity and it all amounted to nothing. They merely exchanged one poor rural base for another poor rural base. All their previous investments are up in flames. Mao is the leader of a party that is vastly impoverished and understaffed in a very poor region of China. Okay. Now, this brings us to the question. We've reached 1937. What if war with Japan didn't was delayed? What if it didn't happen in 1937? What if it was another couple of years? Well, let's engage in some counterfactual uh, speculation because it's, it's, it's a useful exercise. The destruction of the communist, Chinese Communist Party was imminent. Imminent. The CCP was on the run. They had been confined to hostile, extremely resource-poor territory. And Chiang Kai-shek was determined to finish him off. He was flying into towns all along the route. And he's saying, we're going to get him. We're finally going to get him. And exterminate him once and for all. Okay? And it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. If any of you have ever, you know, opened your eyes and your ears, you know that the Communist Party wins. How does they win? From the, as low as you can go in 1935, how do they win just for 14 years later and take over all of China except for Taiwan? Two factors reverse the fortunes of the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party, both related to Japan. An indirect factor and a direct factor. The indirect factor. The erosion of nationalist and Chiang Kai-shek's political legitimacy that results from a prudent but politically dangerous strategy to refuse to confront Japan prior to 1937. Like I said before, Chiang Kai-shek knew what happened to Yuan Shikai in 1915, 1916 with those 21 demands and, their, and giving in to them. And he knew that would happen to him too if he didn't fight Japan. But he also knows he's not ready to fight. The result is the Xi'an incident, December 1936. Chiang Kai-shek flies into Xi'an. Remember I said Xi'an was the closest big city to Yan'an? Flies into Xi'an. Uh, Xi'an. Xi'an. To talk to people about, you know, the next step of exterminating the communists in Yan'an. Because they were going to succeed. And when he's in Xi'an, Zhang Xueliang, the son of Zhang Zuolin, that old Manchurian warlord who had become a Communist Party member, but not from the Wampoa Academy days. He's not the earliest, you know, indoctrinated and trained of the loyal officers. He gets together with another war, uh, uh, another ex-warlord, and they decide we need to stop Chiang Kai-shek's policy of not fighting Japan because he's sacrificing the nation at the expense of going after the communists. And so they hatch a plan that when Chiang Kai-shek is in Xi'an, we're going to kidnap him and force him under physical coercion and confinement and the threat of death to form another, a second coalition with the communists and fight Japan together. And that's exactly what they do. Chiang Kai-shek goes to the Hua Qingchi, uh, uh, sort of a resort spa in the hills near Xi'an. And while he's at the Hua Qingchi asleep, Zhang Xueliang's men attack. Chiang Kai-shek hears gunshots, flees out into the surrounding hills behind the spa, and starts climbing the mountainside in his PJs. And tourists today can go to this, this site, the Hua Qingchi, and they can see the bullet hole still on the mountainside that shot at Chiang Kai-shek as he was climbing up the mountain in his pajamas. And they take him under arrest, and they force him to agree to a second coalition with the communists and stop fighting them, right on the eve of when he may have been able to finally totally exterminate them.
Okay, That's the indirect factor, the erosion of his political legitimacy that creates situations like this. Like I said, Mao Zedong would never have to fear that kind of insubordination from his men because he'll never have his political legitimacy eroded. Okay, why? Because the Japanese invasion of China will save him. This is the direct factor. The Japanese invade China in 1937. All right. Remember, they had already created a puppet state of Manchukuo in the Northeast in 1932. The Manchurian incident in late 1931. They had you know, economic interests there, railways there uh, already. And they manufacture military incidents to make it look like the Chinese had attacked them. And then they use it as a pretext to take over. Um, but then they say, you know, this is the age of national determination. You're not allowed to just come in and create a new empire anymore. Uh, we have to justify it in terms of creating a new, a new nation state and liberating them from Chinese oppression. So they create Manchukuo, the, the country of the Manchus, on the pretext that they this is where the Manchu people came from. Um, and they were oppressed in the wake of the 1911 revolution uh, by the Chinese and were restoring them to their natural homeland. And they find Pui, the one-time boy emperor, who's now in his 20s or 30s, um, and they set him up as the emperor of Manchukuo. No one has any power. It's a total puppet state, but they have to maintain the fiction that this is an independent state. They set that up in 1932. Okay, 1937, they then manufacture another military incident to then invade Beijing, to cross out of Manchuria into the heartland, and that is usually seen as the beginning of World War II, the, the invasion of Beijing, and then the invasion of Shanghai by water. And then they go up from Shanghai, Shanghai, Nanjing, Wuhan, and each time the Nationalist Party retreats further and further inland until they finally set up their wartime capital in Chongqing. Okay, the Japanese invasion leads to the physical and organizational destruction of the GMD. And the loss of morale, of discipline, of resources. Okay, the Nationalist Party will be, for all intents and purposes, a hollow shell of itself after World War II. Okay, meanwhile, what are the communists able to do during World War II? Well, the war itself, or at least the threat of war with Japan, led to Chiang Kai-shek being forced to give up the extermination campaign, which was about to succeed. Okay, it leads to that. The erosion of political legitimacy ends the extermination campaign. Okay, and then the actual physical invasion of China by the Japanese means that the nationalists now not only can't fight the communists, they have to fight the Japanese and lose their men against a superior force. Which means they're not fighting the communists anymore. So the communists, way out in the isolated hinterlands of northern China, are able to recruit new members to their party. Okay, and they do. And they undertake land reform. And no one can interfere, no one can attack them. It's one, they're living in a little bubble. It's a poor bubble, but they're living in a bubble out there. Remember, they only came to Yan'an with about 8,000 people. By the end of World War II, get ready for this number. You know what the membership of the Communist Party is by the end of World War II? One million men. Are you kidding me? One million men. That's the astonishing growth that they will have during World War II when they're not under fire by Chiang Kai-shek. And, you know, don't mistake, uh, don't buy into the propaganda that the communists will later peddle that says we're the ones who fought the Japanese while the, while the nationalists didn't. Uh, historians working in the archives finally have archival access to what was going on have actually shown that it was the exact opposite. That was later communist propaganda meant to denigrate Chiang Kai-shek's government and make it seem like they were the true defenders, that the communists were the true defenders of China. 
We now know that the communists fought one major pitched land battle against the Japanese, lost miserably, and vowed not to engage them again. And they had the luxury of not doing that because they weren't the legitimate central government of China. We don't have to do that. Chiang Kai-shek has to fight. Now, once the Japanese have invaded, he has to fight. He can't hold his troops back anymore and say, I'm saving them for, to fight the, the, the communists once civil war resumes. The communists could, and they didn't fight anymore after that. They had some guerrilla warfare. They did guerrilla activities, but you don't lose a whole lot of men in guerrilla warfare. That's the luxury of not being the central government of China at that time period. All right? In many ways, it's very ironic. It's very ironic because the communists are able to withdraw from war, essentially, in many ways, at least the large pitched battles, and be able to build up their strength, and yet claim that they're the ones who are truly defending China. Okay? At the same time, even more importantly, well, I don't know, equally important, let's say, uh, Mao Zedong is able to uh, impose an ideological discipline and cohesion on his party in this Yan'an isolated area that Chiang Kai-shek can't possibly do. Okay? Remember, Chiang Kai-shek is constantly incorporating new warlords. Wartime against Japan makes it even worse. Okay? He no longer has his base of recruited soldiers from the Yangtze River Delta. Uh, now he has to recruit new conscripts from Sichuan, way in inland western China, people who are totally culturally, linguistically unfamiliar to the people from the Wampo Academy. It's very difficult to recruit. Ideological discipline breaks down. All right, more uh, morale in the city of Chongqing is incredibly low. All right, not the case in Yan'an. Mao Zedong actually feels so confident that he is able to undertake what is called the rectification campaign. Zhengfeng Yundong, the rectification campaign. From 1942 to 1944, Mao Zedong undertakes a purge of his entire party of anyone who he suspects of being the slightest bit disloyal to his leadership of the party since he assumed power in 1935, in the middle of the Long March. Okay? He f that's what he's doing during wartime. He's undertaking land reform, getting popular support from the peasantry, raising his membership of his party from 8,000 to 1 million, and undertaking an ideological purge of his party to get rid of all rivals. Oh, would that Chiang Kai-shek could do something similar. He would have killed for that, literally. He would have killed for that. All right? Chiang Kai-shek would have killed for the opportunity to implement a rectification campaign and purge his party of all the disloyal uh, former warlords and people who have opportunistic people who have had to join his government during the wartime era. He can't do that. He has to fight Japan. He's the legitimate government of China. All right, that's going to hurt. That's going to hurt. And that's the lesson, the bird's eye lesson of the first half of the 20th century. Whoever is the central government of China during a period in which foreign imperialists are stronger than any Chinese force that person will have their political political legitimacy eroded by the failure to be able to defeat that foreign force. First, it was the Manchu Qing dynasty, okay? Then it was Yuan Shikai. Now it's Chiang Kai-shek. Why will the communists eventually be able to come to power and not be sullied by the taint of having not fought a foreign imperialist government? Because they were never in power. They were never the central government of China while the foreign imperialists were meddling in Chinese domestic affairs. It's that simple, guys. That's it. If the Mao Zedong and the communists had been the central government of China during World War II, 
If they had had their own red terror against the nationalists in 1927 and took over and then they had to fight the Japanese, they would have been annihilated just like Chiang Kai-shek was. Ideological cohesion and discipline would have disintegrated. Okay? In the old days, historians used to talk about this in moral terms, like, oh, Chiang Kai-shek was corrupt and this and that, and the communists were so much more honest and doing things for the popular support of the peasantry. It's all bullshit. All right? It's all related to external, larger forces and themes that the individual men don't have a lot of control over. Whoever was the, the government of China, the internationally recognized central government of China, was going to get screwed by World War II in China. And that was Chiang Kai-shek. So the irony here is that the precocious rise to power of Chiang Kai-shek, an early victory over the communists, is his grave eventually. Because that gives him the reward. What is your reward for coming to power? Being designated Sun Yat-sen's successor, getting rid of the communists in the early uh, late 1920s and early 1930s. What is your reward? Japan. Yeah, great reward, right? So the nationalists, as we said, were only three to four years away from approaching parity with Japan, the Japanese military. At a minimum, the risk factor for an invasion of China would have been raised substantially. Instead, the Sino-Japanese War uh, all but destroys the cohesion, the resources, the morale, the discipline of the Nationalist Party. And it saved and strengthened the CCP. Hey, you don't have to trust from me. You don't have to take it from me. You don't believe me? They go, oh, Professor Jacobs, he's a Taiwan lover. Uh, he's, a, he's you know, so sympathetic with National. His bias is so obvious. I'm not, I'm not listening to this crappy podcast anymore. Take it from Mao Zedong himself in the 1950s when the Japanese send their first unofficial cultural delegation to China, a goodwill mission because they don't have official relations under the influence of the U.S. Um, um, when the first Japanese delegation of kabuki opera troupe actors comes to Beijing, Mao greets them, shakes their hand warmly, and says, xie xie, xie xie. Thank you, thank you. Without your invasion, we never would have come to power. That's in the archives. That's in published archives. Go look that up. I have the source. Email me. I'll send you the, the page and source printed by the communist government itself. You can find that document in which Mao acknowledges we never would have come to power if it wasn't for you and your invasion of China. Okay. Um... All right, so World War II, like I said, I'm not a military historian. I'm not going into a blow-by-blow -blow of battles here and here. All I'm going to tell you is that the, the Japanese obviously got bogged down in a land war in which the, their opponent could just retreat further and further. Um, it was a lose-lose for both the nationalists and the Japanese. It bogged down into a quagmire. Both sides have horrific losses. Uh, from our perspective, what's important here to understand is that Chiang Kai-shek loses all of his elite German-trained units, his munitions, his tanks, all of that. His morale. He feels obligated to send some of his best troops to the Burma Theater. The Burma Theater! In which many of them perish. Okay? But he feels he has to do that because, hey, I'm the legitimate central government of China. If I don't, if I don't contribute to the Allied cause outside of China then they might not help us with inside of China. Does Mao Zedong have to deal with this dilemma? No. No one expects Mao and the communists to send a contingent to the Burma theater. Are you kidding me? He just gets to sit back, recruit, purge his party of disloyal elements, and get ready for the civil war. Once the war is over and Japan's gone, we're going to kick the nationalist ass. 
The communists don't have to come out and then fight a war again until after Japan is defeated. And in the course of World War II, the other foreign powers, the French, the British, will voluntarily finally renounce their privileges in China. 1943, they renounce extraterritoriality. Voluntarily, as allies now in a common cause, let's do this as a goodwill uh, measure. Okay? So by 1945, when the war is over, Japan's defeated, and the foreigners have basically said, we're not going to meddle anymore. How wonderful. If only that had happened 15 years ago, Chiang Kai-shek would have been just fine. But no, it happens in 1945, in which Chiang Kai-shek's government is now in shambles. The CCP is stronger than ever, and it's going to be a civil war. The civil war is too, too lofty a name to give to what's going to happen. The Nationalist Party falls apart. Despite huge American aid, uh, there's no discipline. There's no chain of command. Former warlords don't follow commands. The communists are a crack disciplined force. The Soviets allow them to take over the rural areas of Manchuria, former Japanese areas, the most industrial, industrially advanced parts of China, and then they're able to take over the cities, and then they sweep down from north to south and drive the nationalists over to Taiwan. And that's the end <laughs> of the political chronology of the Republican era in China. Next time, we will shift gears a little bit out to the borderlands. You know me, I'm a big borderland guy, so next time we are going to talk about Mongolia. Tibet, and Xinjiang, from 1900 to 1949, in episode 35 of Beyond Huaxia.